Over the uh, past few weeks, we've been working our way through our uh, summer sermon series, uh, The One Another's. Uh, as you know, there are over 50 One Another's in the New Testament. And over the past few weeks, we've looked at things like love one another, uh, forgive one another, confess to one another, be members of one another last week. And today we come to uh, one another that at first glance appears to be <clears throat> a negative and, and even onerous. Submit to one another. Now, now, submit is a word that we don't often use, and when we do, it's usually a negative, a negative connotation. Uh, we submit an application for a loan. We, we know there's a possibility of being rejected. We submit an application for a scholarship or for a job or for college or whatever. We know there's a possibility of being rejected. Uh, an even stronger negative connotation uh, would be in other situations, maybe a, a person in a powerful situation, uh, a king or a dictator, or uh, maybe a power-hungry boss. They, they uh, sometimes misuse or abuse that power and make those beneath them bend to the will. They make them uh, submit. I was looking uh, through, flipping through ESPN the other day and watched a few highlights of uh, MMA fight, MMA, mixed martial arts. And uh, in, in, in mixed martial arts, a winning fighter will often win with what they call a submission hold. He gets a hold on a leg or an arm or neck or head, and they, they force them to tap out. They force them to give in. They make them submit. Submit to us has an, a negative tone. I mean, who wants to submit to another person in our, when in our minds it means giving in or, or, or giving up, knuckling under, being weak or powerless, being taken advantage of, uh, being a failure? You know, I venture to say that the majority of, of the arguments and fights that we have with each other in relationships can be traced back to one or both persons not wanting to give in, not wanting to submit. A husband and a wife, a father, son, a mother, a daughter, a coach, a player, a boss, an employee. As human beings, we can be stubborn, we can be self-centered, and we don't give in easily. And when we have to because we don't have a choice, well, that's a tough pill to swallow. In the Bible, however, the, the word submit isn't always a negative. In fact, it can be a very positive thing, a very helpful word and action in our relationships with God and our relationships with others. It can be a trigger that, that propels us to deeper connectedness and deeper meaning and significance in those relationships. Now, the first time I remember looking at the biblical command to submit to one another was back in 1990 when my wife Nancy and I were engaged and we were a few months from our wedding and we were going through premarital counseling. And in one of our sessions, John Mars, who was the pastor, I was a youth pastor, he was my boss, and he was the one doing the wedding. He, he opened his Bible and began with Ephesians 5.21. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Now, the wonderful thing about following Jesus is that in the Bible, whenever we are called to do something or we're called to be somebody, Jesus either A, sets the example for us on how to do it and how to be it, and or B, he promises to help us do what we're being called to do. So before we look at, at how we are to submit to one another in different sorts of relationships, Let's look at Jesus first and, and see how that can inform us. Now, the Greek word for submit is used in other places in the Bible. And it's used in some of those places in relationship to Jesus Christ and how he 
uh, treated other people, how he was involved with other people. For instance, Philippians chapter 2, which is a, a stunning passage of Scripture. It's a beautiful passage of Scripture. And if, in fact, if you want to look at it, it's just a couple pages over from Ephesians 5 and 6. In, in Philippians 2, there's this beautiful passage called the kenosis. Kenosis is a Greek word for emptying, where it speaks of how Jesus Christ came out of heaven and emptied himself, put limits on him, allowed limits to be put upon himself. He gave up certain rights, and, 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 he, and he did that so to serve us. And so let's take a look at this passage, starting at uh, Philippians 5, before we jump back to Ephesians. Verse 5 of chapter 2. In your relationships with one another, have the same attitude of mind Christ Jesus had, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, And being found in appearance as a human being, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Now the key to, one of the keys to understanding this this biblical concept of of submission and what it means to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ is is, is found in this this passage, this kenosis of of, of Philippians chapter 2. It describes a a self-sacrificial, others-oriented, humble service. And it points us to an attitude that doesn't grasp tightly to our rights. The, the Apostle Paul, who wrote both of these books, the letter to the Ephesians and the letter to the, to the Philippians, he's reminding us of what Jesus Christ has done for us, his attitude, how he lived his life on earth, and how God is now calling us to have the same mind in our relationships with one another. So in other words, when it comes to submitting to one another, what would Jesus do and what did Jesus do? A more succinct example and illustration comes from Jesus himself uh, in, in, in Mark chapter 10. Uh, the, the familiar story, Jesus is, is approached by two of the disciples, their brothers, James and, and John, and, and um, they're doing what you know a lot of us tend to do in life, is they're angling for a better position. They are they're using their connection to Jesus. They're leveraging, hoping to leverage their relationship with him. They're looking out for number one. And so they ask Jesus, Jesus, we know you're, you're, you're going to come into a kingdom. You're going to be a king and you're going you're to come into your glory. When you do so, we'd like to ask you a favor. Um, one of us would like to sit on your left and one of us would like to sit on your right. We want to be close to you. We want to be kind of elevated close to you so people look at us and see us in relationship to you and think we're special and important and, and powerful. And Jesus says to them, in essence, you don't know what you're asking for. You don't know what you'd be getting yourselves into. And the other disciples find out about it, and they're kind of upset. It's kind of like when you know, one kid asks for a favor, and the other kid finds out, and they get kind of, hey, you know. And so the disciples come to Jesus, and, and Jesus tells them that, in essence, following me is not about jostling for position. It's not about exercising your rights. It's not about authority. It's not about human power. And he sums it up for them this way. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. That's Mark 10, 45, one of the first verses I memorized. And and Jesus, Jesus perfectly lived that out. 
His whole life and death were about, one, glorifying God the Father, and two, serving other human beings like you and me. And though He was the Son of God, though He spoke and the world came into being, though He had the power of of heaven at His fingertips, for us, He gave up His place in heaven. He did not grasp His rights. He became one of us, and He served. He served by healing and by forgiving and by loving and by serving. And ultimately, He showed this love for us by dying on the cross. And we are called to do the same thing. We're to follow Christ's example, and out of love for Him, we are to submit to others in our relationships. So what's that look like? Well, well, Paul's a very practical guy, and so in the following verses, after verse 21, it's sort of a thesis statement. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And then over the next several verses, he breaks it down into three areas. This is what it would look like in marriage. This is what it should look like in the home, family, parents, children. And this is what it can look like in, in the work environment. He talks about slaves and slave owners. That was a primary work uh, environment. It would be different now for us, of course. But the same principles apply. Before we look at specifics, though, a couple things. Submission is always to be mutual. It's always to be mutual. We are to follow Christ's example. We are not to lord it over somebody else. It's to be mutual. It's not one-sided. It's to be voluntary. In other words, we don't have to submit. Christ doesn't make us submit in this life. Now, at the end of time, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. But in this life, he doesn't make us submit. It's a choice. It's free will. And it should be the same in our our mutual submission with others. Um, Thirdly, our motivation, of course, is to be out of reverence for Christ. And that denotes a healthy respect, a love, a gratitude, and awareness of who exactly we're we're dealing with here. Uh, That that he's the king of the universe, that he's the son of God, that, that he also modeled service and submission for us by even washing the feet of the disciples, even washing the feet of Judas, who was going to betray him later that night. Our motivation is to be reverence for Christ. So, let's take a look now at what it might look like, practically speaking, real briefly, kind of a flyby, because we could spend several weeks on each area. But what would it look like, briefly, to have this mutual submission in our relationships, our primary relationships? And keep this in mind that... um, that in the context and the examples that Paul uses, that neither role is better or superior. There are just differences in roles and responsibilities and, and, and positions and status in life. First, let's take a look at marriage. And I should qualify. Is Nancy in here? If she's not, it's safe to talk about it. No, no, no there she is. There, I'll, I'll have to be careful. Um, but verses 22 to 23, or excuse me, 22 to 33, um, Paul talks about what, what it would look like in marriage if there's mutual submission out of reverence for Christ. So let's pick it up again. I'll read through and make a couple more comments. Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church, his body of which he is the Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. 
In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. Now, a couple of things. Again, um, this is talking about roles and responsibilities. Uh, it says, wives, when, when it says, wives, submit your husbands, remember, first of all, that Christ himself submitted himself for us. And so it's not talking about inferiority. It's not talking about weakness, be, about being a doormat. It's about following the example of Christ, of service and other-centeredness. Also, something to remember is it says, um, submit to them as you do to the Lord. Uh, we need to remember that husbands are not the Lord. Okay? It is, it's a metaphor. It doesn't say just like the Lord. Because the husbands are wrong. Uh, and I've been men wrong many times, and my wife has helped me and encouraged me, and so I, I thank her for that. So it's a mutual, uh, a mutual relationship. But then you jump to what it says about husbands. And there seems to be more verses. I'm not sure if it's because husbands are a little slower to pick up on it or not. But um, it talks about husbands being the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church. Again, it's talking about a role and an action, a responsibility. Um, uh, biblically speaking, husbands have the spiritual responsibility of the well-being of the family. Now, the, the wife is involved in that, of course, and, and they work together in that. Uh, but the scripture tells us that husbands will be held accountable for how they fathered and how they raised their children in the Lord. And, it's, and you can see it reflected in, in some of the studies that have been out there in that when um, uh, the mother goes to church but the husband doesn't or isn't involved, children are much, much more likely to fall away from the faith and leave the church. When the husband's involved but the wife is not, the statistics are much, much better. And when both involved, of course, the statistics are the highest. Um, the husbands are to serve they are to love. They are to give themselves up, just like Christ did to the church. Christ did not lord over the church. He, he sacrificed. He gave up his rights. He gave up his life so that the church would be safe. And then Paul concludes this section in verse 33, where he talks about how the husband should love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect, respect her husband. Again, it goes back to both need to be loved and respected. But typically speaking, a guy is not going to feel respected or loved until he's respected. And a woman typically isn't going to feel um, respected until she's loved. Let's take a look now at um, children and parents. Verse 1 of chapter 6. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, comes from the Ten Commandments, which is the first commandment with a promise so that it may go well with you and that you may enjoy a long life on the earth. So if your kids aren't obeying, you can just tell them, if you want to live a long time, you better, you better obey. Now, it's kind of a general principle. Um, but the key, the key command here for, for children is obedience. It's, it's hard for a child to learn how to obey Christ if, if they can't obey their own parents. Obedience doesn't always come easily for us, though. Uh, there's a story about a young girl who was watching her mom do dishes at the window sink, and she noticed that her mother, who was a brunette, was starting to have some white strands in her hair. And she said, um, Mom, why are some of your hairs white? And her mom said, Well, whenever you push me or, or test me or, or disobey me, I, I, get a, I get a white hair. And she thought about it for a second and said, Well, then, how come Grandma's hairs are all white? <laughs> hmm. Paul, Paul addresses children directly and gives three reasons for them to obey. One, it has to do with their personal relationship with the Lord. 
Secondly, it's because it's the right thing to do. And thirdly, it's because it's part of the, the Ten Commandments. Honor your father and mother. Now, it doesn't end there. And I'd like to skip the next verse because it convicts me so often. It says, Fathers, do not exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. Now, this, this instruction to children presupposes that the parents are the authority. But when Paul gives instructions to the parents, it's not about the exercise of authority. You're the boss, and they've got to do what you want. It's about the restraint of your authority. He says, do not exasperate your children. Don't provoke them to anger. Don't irritate them. Don't humiliate them. Don't shame them. Don't ridicule them. And I've failed at that at times. Don't crush their spirits. It says, but positively it says, Raise them up, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. Proverbs 22.6 says, and they will turn to it when they grow older. And then finally, um, it says uh, in verses 5 through 9, it talks about the work relationship. Where it talks about slaves and, and masters. Again, that was the primary work environment. This would translate to our day as employee or employee. And essentially what it says is, you're not working for your boss, ultimately. You're working for Jesus Christ. So whether they're a boss that you respect or whether they're a boss that's hard to work for, maybe you're more competent than they are or whatever. Paul says, work for them. Work for them as if you are working for Jesus Christ himself. Treat them with respect. Treat them with honor. And through that, it's inferred, you can point them to Jesus Christ. And then conversely, Paul says, to the, those, the slave owners and to us inferring bosses. He essentially says, you're not better than them in God's eyes. You're not more important than them in God's eyes. God is not a God who plays favorites. Treat them as a child of God created in my image. Treat them the way that you would want to be treated if you were his employee. Treat them, in fact, as if Jesus Christ is that person. You know, today as we come to the table, it kind of pulls us together because this, what Jesus Christ did on the cross is the ultimate example of submitting your life on behalf of others. When Jesus Christ came to earth and, and died on a cross for our sins and when his blood was poured out for the cleansing of our sins, he submitted himself. He allowed limits to be placed upon him. And he died a death that he didn't deserve for people who didn't love him. And he did that for you and me. And so as we come to the table today, do so in mind of our relationship with God, but also our relationship with others. How can we, out of reverence for Christ and what he's done on the cross for us, how can we in our marriages, how can we in our family relationships, how can we in our work relationships submit to each other, serve each other, out of reverence for Jesus Christ?